Welcome to Forests, Folklore, and Fantasy. I'm Kelly Rice, but I write and publish under my initials, K.M. Rice. Today, I wanted to spend some time sharing with you a little bit about who I am, what my background is, and why I started a podcast, because this is a brand new adventure to me, and I'm really thankful to have you joining me on this marvelous journey. I am a highly creative and highly imaginative individual. My creativity has taken so many forms over the years. The earliest expressions of, of my creativity came in the form of artwork and writing. I am now a published author. I call myself a fantasy author, even though I don't exclusively write fantasy. I also write historical fiction. I write um, dark comedy, political drama. Um, I've written in a lot of different genres, but my largest series to date has been historical fantasy. So I'm fairly comfortable calling myself a fantasy author at this point in time. And writing was just something... I was born to do. I was fortunate enough to have parents who took the time to read to me when I was a child. And I remember the the joy and the magic of being able to select however many books it was. I think the cap was like three or something. We each got to pick three books and nestling into the couch next to my mom or my dad and having them read the story to us and bring it to life and from those earliest moments, I just knew that I wanted to be able to do that. So as soon as I could put wax crayon to paper, I wrote and illustrated my own book. And that was when I was in kindergarten. Funnily enough, I I brought it to show and tell and read it to the class. And it was a story about a trick-or-treater who goes to a haunted house Everything spelled phonetically, because obviously I was in kindergarten. I didn't properly know how to write. And um, the teacher apparently was impressed, and so she asked me to go to the principal's office. But at that age, I didn't know that anyone went to the principal's office for anything other than misbehaving. So I remember carrying, she said, take your book with you. So I remember clutching this stapled papers to my chest as I walked down the long hallway to the principal's office. And she had me come and sit in a chair. Now, mind you, this principal was hardly any taller than me as a child. She wasn't a very imposing woman. But I remember her bright red lipstick. And she smiled at me and she said, I've heard you've written a story. And I was still waiting for the other shoe to drop. I was still waiting for some sort of reprimand or to be told that I did wrong. And I was like, yes, I did. And she said, would you please read it to me? And so I read her the story. And do you know what she did? She put a sticker on the cover and wrote a little note in her beautiful fine handwriting 
saying what a wonderful story it was, and she thanked me for sharing it with her, and she sent me back to class, and I couldn't believe it. It blew my little kindergarten mind, and apparently planted a seed that I could do this, that I could craft stories out of words, and at that time, images as well, because, of course, as a child of that age, I was reading picture books. To say, however, that it was clear that I wanted to be a novelist or a writer from that moment onward would not necessarily be true. I know that looking retrospectively back at my life, I can see a clear pattern, but that never felt clear to me in the moment. Even though by the time I got to fourth grade and I was reading things like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, A Wrinkle in Time, and other wonderful classic children's fantasy novels. And I was um, winning every story contest that my class had. Every two weeks, we had to write a, a story. And if you won the best story and illustrated it, um, you got two store-bought, crappy, processed vanilla cookies from my teacher's metal cupboard. In fact, if you won four spelling bees in a row, no, not even if you aced four spelling tests in a row, maybe it was more than that. It seems like it had to have been more than that. No, four in a row, you got to go get ice cream, which I got to do. And if you did it for like four months in a row, you got to fly in his personal plane. This was the 90s, everyone. This was me growing up in my rural mountain town in the 90s. When we went to go get ice cream, we were literally fourth graders thrown in the back of this man's cab in his truck like he had a shell on it, right? No seatbelts or anything. We were just rolling around on the plywood down to our local thrifty, which is now CVS, I guess, and got our $1 scoop of crappy ice cream and then back to campus. And we had a great time, but I just cannot imagine anything like that happening today. But as both these stories illustrate, I was, my talent for storytelling was being recognized early on. It just, again, was not clear to me. So I went through high school and I still enjoyed writing. In fact, I, that was around the time that I first discovered fan fiction and started writing very original fan fiction, just sort of playing with the characters, but creating my own worlds and putting the characters in different eras in history and really just flexing my muscles in that way. It wasn't until I was in college when one of my professors, a humanities professor, I was helping her carry her books back to her office from the classroom. And I said, well, I don't know what I want to do. And she said, well, you're a really good writer. Have you thought of being an English major? Because unfortunately for me at that time at my university, there was no creative writing major. So due to her guidance and looking at the course catalog, because back in those days, it was actually a printed catalog. I looked through the list of classes required to get an English degree, and most of them sounded fascinating to me. So I chose to pursue that degree and got a Bachelor of Arts in English. It, of course, was very literature heavy. And then my university started offering a 
Master of Fine Arts degree in creative writing. So I went and did that program. And because it was not necessarily well respected by all in that department, in the English department, when they built the program, they made half of the courses be heavy literature courses. And the other half of the courses were actually the creative writing discipline of the students choosing or whatever they were actually accepted into. So I have a very strong background in European and British, and I can even say some American literature as a result of this. My decision to go to graduate school, however, wasn't easy. Um, again, another impetus that pushed me to make that decision was getting recognition for my writing. I, for fun, one day wrote a short story called The Woe of William, and I mimicked the style of Edgar Allan Poe, who's one of my favorite authors, or writers, I should say, and heard about this short story contest, and I submitted. And I remember, because at the time I was taking some graduate-level classes, even though it was an undergrad, and one of those courses, which touches on a subject I'll get to in a minute, or two, uh, was Old English. I decided to learn Anglo-Saxon, which is a dead language. And I remember I was often early because I had to commute from far away from, again, I'm in this rural mountain town and the university's way off in the city. I remember sitting in the classroom and having one of my upperclassmen walk in, look at me and, and give me some kind of praise or big compliment. And he's like, man, you, you kicked our butts or something like that. And I, I had no idea what he was talking about, but I was like, well... Isn't this the way to start the morning? I could get used to this. And then he revealed that my short story had won. And not only had it won, but it had won against students in the Master of Fine Arts program for fiction. So at that point, I was taking an introduction to fiction course and had a little chat with my professor, who's very Snape-like. And... He very much encouraged me to apply to be in the program, uh, to be in the Master of Fine Arts program. And for context, another reason I was really hesitant, not only the cost, but also one of my friends had applied as a poet. And he said that out of 90 to 100 applications, only three people would be accepted as in the poetry track. So... I don't know if it was as competitive for fiction, but I had it in my head that I just didn't have much of a chance, but I did it anyway, and I got in, and I did really well there. Again, I feel like I'm supposed to say, and then I wrote a bestseller and was like an overnight success in my 20s, but that's, that's not true, and that very rarely happens to a lot of people, but what did happen was in tandem with learning the craft of fiction writing, I was studying screenwriting. And screenwriting came very naturally to me, so much so that one of my professors entered the second script I ever wrote into a university-wide competition, and it won. So with my permission, he paid the entry fee and entered it into a state school-wide university California State University school-wide um, competition, and it won. And he was really excited and proud because he'd been hoping to have 
one of his students win that for a long time. And then it went on to win a national screenwriting competition. So again, I had this massive amount of external validation for my storytelling. And yet, to this day, like I'm sitting here recording this podcast for you all. And I'm assuming that several of you are, if not writers, then other readers, and you're interested in things like this. But to this day, I do not feel like I have some magical ability to tell great stories with the written word. I do it because I don't feel like I have a choice. Like I said from the start, as soon as I could hold a crayon and form letters, I just started doing it. I had a fairly eye-opening moment in grad school when we were having some open discussions about fiction writing and it occurred to me that fiction writers or writers in general tend to fall into one of two categories and one is not better than the other but they tend to fall into the category of people who have no choice like me who were born and this was the thing that some part of their mind is driving them to do and if you don't do it you're going to suffer in some way and the people who love to read appreciate the craft and the art and don't necessarily have that drive from birth but can learn it from maybe this isn't fair but I feel like they learn it from the outside and work their way in whereas I feel like I've learned it from the inside and worked my way out I've had to struggle to communicate my ideas to learn to trust my instincts and to follow my own voice whereas I saw other students write beautiful prose and gorgeous scenes and yet not much happened because they were still learning how do I connect with story how do I build story I could obviously talk at length about some of the mechanics of writing and the nature of inspiration, and I'm certain I will at some point. But let us close the chapter on me as a fantasy author, me as a writer for this portion of the podcast. Um, on my YouTube channel, I used to run an author vlog where I would answer people's questions and share writing advice from both my experience and what I learned in the Master of Fine Arts program I took. And I'm happy to do that here as well. So if you're listening, please feel free to get in touch with me. All the links are in the show notes. And let me know if there is a subject you'd like me to cover to do with writing. So the word fantasy and folklore, force, and fantasy obviously can be ascribed to me as a writer, but I also want this podcast to be a space where I can discuss slash we, because I'm hoping to evolve to the point of having guests on in the near future, but where we can discuss influential writers and works of fantasy, because I'm also a lover of fantasy.
I want to take a moment here to list some of the books and authors that have had a dramatic impact on me as a person, as a reader, as well as as an author. And they're not all fantasy, but you'll definitely notice a fantasy trend. I already mentioned Edgar Allan Poe, who's more gothic horror, I suppose. I also absolutely love Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. The Three Musketeers by Alexandre Dumont. I might be mispronouncing that. His Dark Materials, which is a series by Philip Pullman. Of course, the Narnia books by C.S. Lewis. The Aragon, or excuse me, The Inheritance Cycle by Christopher Paolini. The Mists of Avalon by Marion Zimmer Bradley. The Winter Night Trilogy by Catherine Arden. And not trying to save the last for the grand finale, but unintentionally doing so, the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. My love of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit led me on the most unpredictable path in my 20s and early 30s. My sister and I, it's a long story, maybe I'll tell it one day, but for right now, suffice it to say that my sister and I somehow found ourselves at San Diego Comic Con one year with a website called theonebring.net, which is the premier site for Tolkien fans by Tolkien fans. They're still around, and I am currently a volunteer staff member on that site. And in order to become a, a staff member, I needed to be doing something to contribute. So after getting to meet several of the wonderful folks behind this website that I obsessively admittedly checked multiple times every day for news on the Hobbit films when they were announced and going into production. I knew I needed to create something to contribute. So it was my sister and my first time to San Diego. Actually, that's not true. I went there when I was a baby. I potty trained myself on a trip to the San Diego Zoo when I was like two. And I only vaguely remember riding an elephant and being upset that I couldn't crawl onto his head. Or her head. <laughs> but um, it was my first time in, like, when I was, like, conscious as a human that I was in San Diego. And we were really blown away by the big buildings and the hustle and bustle. And San Diego Comic Con is, is like a baptism by fire for a nerd. It's like 120 to 150,000 people who are all geeks in in a relatively small part of the city and it was a lot to take in and 
through the contrast of this urban environment and talking to people who lived very different lives than my sister and I did, we realized that not only do we live a more rural, close-to-earth, homestead-ish lifestyle, but we were a lot more like hobbits because of it. And that we had some hobbit knowledge, hobbit craft, if you will, that we could share with others. So initially I thought of doing a blog, but somehow it sounded like less work to film it and do a web series. And thus we came up with this concept of a YouTube show called Happy Hobbit, where we strive to bring Middle Earth to your daily life. It has been on for over 10 years. We have dramatically slowed in our episode productions for various reasons, but it's still out there. And it was an incredible, wonderful gift to me. And at its height, it was such an enchanting period of my life. We had a video go viral. Um, we didn't know that reacting to film trailers was a thing. We just didn't have time to write out uh, a prose response as members of the OneRing.net. We were asked to do so when the trailer for the second Hobbit film came out. So my sister suggested, let's just set up the camera and film ourselves. And so we did, and we were intending to just film us watching the trailer, then offering our thoughts on it. And we did that. And my sister can be very exuberant. She wears her heart on her sleeve. And she was really excited for this movie. And then I would build off of her. So a very, very fangirlish video was captured of us like squealing and screaming at this trailer for The Hobbit. And the director, Peter Jackson, saw it and shared it on his Facebook page. Because back then Facebook was, you know, much more of a thing than it is now. And it took off. And at first, it was kind of scary because that was the representation of us to the world. And here I was about to launch my very first novel. I was about to publish my first book, Darkling. And um, I wanted it to be taken seriously. And I wanted it to be taken seriously. It got even more insane when he then filmed... His elven cast, so that's Orlando Bloom, Evangeline, Lily, and Lee Pace, in their costumes, watching the video of us reacting. So that went mega viral. These beautiful people, these beautiful actors in their outfits, their costumes, laughing at, laughing with us. I want to say laughing at us. And it really catapulted not only our channel, because I remember that morning thinking, oh my gosh, we've reached 300 subscribers. We should do a post to celebrate. Now, then like 10,000 more people showed up. So, and we had like 200 media requests in my email, this, that, and the other. It was very overwhelming, but wonderful at the same time. And it ended up sending us to the red carpet for the world premieres of the second Hobbit film, The Desolation of Smaug, and the third Hobbit film, The Battle of the Five Armies, um, as press for the OneRing.net. And it was just such a miraculous, wonderful adventure as 
someone living in the mountains, not able to see a house from any of our windows, and acting out scenes from Lord of the Rings from our youth onward, just because we were that big of nerds and that into it, talking about Peter Jackson as if we knew him, to then be in a situation where we can interview him on the red carpet really was such a dream come true in so many ways that it's still difficult for me to accept that it's real and that it happened. Um, so follow your passion. You really, really never know where it's going to lead you. So even though Happy Hobbit isn't quite as big of a deal in my life as it used to be um it was still potent enough i guess that uh when prime video was putting together a pr team to look for folks to help build some talking community hype for their new show the rings of power um well back then it was the new show they reached out to me and i got to go on a really cool trip to England, where I'd never been before, and do a tour of Oxford and see places where the professor lived and wrote, and my obsession was the trees, looking at the trees that he likely would have been looking at. Um, so I had some amazing opportunities there through Prime Video, and that was another part of wanting to do this podcast with the web series I won't say dying down because I don't like the verb dying um, with it not being something that takes up as much of my focus and attention anymore as it used to be, largely in part because it's now more or less a solo show. My sister, for various reasons, had to step back. Almost all of those reasons were related to her health. Um, so I wanted to have a platform to still be able to geek out over not only fantasy in general, but Tolkien, but not have it be strictly about Tolkien. I think you'll hear that word a lot here, Tolkien. Um, I will be talking about it a lot, but this is by no means a Tolkien podcast. That said, I am still super excited to continue this conversation and also it frees me up to have a little bit more of an intellectual or maybe academic conversation about Tolkien because with Happy Hobbit's focus being how to teach people how to bring Middle Earth into their daily lives it was I won't say limiting but it just wasn't the right tone our point was to be uplifting and inspiring and I think we really succeeded in that and I'm quite proud of it, if I do say so myself. So this does bring me back to part of my story about my writing background involving um, Old English. And now I can weave that back in because the reason I wanted to study Anglo-Saxon or Old English, which is the language in which Beowulf was written, it's an ancestor language to English, to modern English, and I believe German in some way. But um, I'm a little rusty. It was a long time ago now. 
the reason I desperately wanted to learn what I could of, of this language was because Professor Tolkien taught it at Oxford, and I knew that it somehow enriched the soil of his imagination. Um, and you know what? I'm... I should say, and I should have said this when I was talking about the books earlier that have influenced me, I am going to talk about Tolkien and classic literature, so literature that's been around for like 50 years or more. I'm going to talk about it very candidly and assume that if you have not read it that you do not mind spoilers. However, for more recent fiction, like the Winter Night Trilogy comes to mind, um, I will try to discuss anything that I want to discuss or need to discuss while still being respectful of readers who haven't read it. And or if I'm going to have an episode that is heavily talking about a book or a film, uh, I will say that in the beginning and I will warn you that there are spoilers because I am someone who does not like spoilers. I know that there are people who do like spoilers, but I want this to be a spoiler safe space. That might be oxymoronic what I just said, but definitely I'm not speaking proper English anymore at this point. But to get back to talking about Old English, um, I took a, a course that was an intro to Old English, and then the next semester we individually translated the Beowulf manuscript. And looking back, that was one of the best things I ever did academically. And just as a person, there's so much beauty and richness to that language. But to acknowledge my impetus, like my inspiration for taking that course, is to also have to acknowledge why I chose to be an English degree and why I chose to go to the university I went to, which was I had been accepted into this humanities honors program, and I knew I was going to get an education in the classics. And not only do I think that that's a great idea for anyone literary-minded, but I have to fully confess, I was on the hunt for something that probably doesn't exist. I had this idea that if I had a similar education to that of some of my favorite writers, which, by the way, I didn't mention all of them. I also love Percy Shelley and John Keats and Mary Shelley. I'm not the biggest fan of Byron. I know that's a controversial thing to say. But I knew that a lot of these writers I so admired, including Tolkien, had an education in the classics, had learned Latin or Greek. So I studied Latin as well. At the same time as Old English, not, not recommended. Don't try to learn two dead languages at once. And but I thought that if I could have the same education they had or just something similar, maybe I would be able to... I guess, fertilize the soil of my imagination to the point that something 
epic and grand and monumental might grow out of it. And studying Old English was part of that because I knew that Tolkien was a professor of Old English and in fact elevated it to the, lo the level of respect that it now holds in the academic world. Before that, it was more or less considered this curiosity. Well, that more applies to the actual poem of Beowulf, but the study of Old English in many ways goes hand in hand with that. Like Tolkien, I also have always been drawn to mythology. And I think that's why even in my early days, I was drawn to more fantasy novels, because they often heavily draw from not only mythology and folklore, but archetypes and universal themes, things of that nature, and tell stories in almost a symbolic form. And this is something I should do a whole episode on because there is a great prejudice against anything known as quote genre unquote in my master fine arts program where as to me I didn't see the difference between that and writing gritty literary fiction to me there it was still full of of bad guys and good guys and fights and weapons the only difference was to me the fantasy literature was being very open about what it was and the literary fiction was just trying to hide it. But in my mind, they're more or less telling a lot of the same stories. So that love of history, that love of mythology, that love of learning, in fact, passion for learning, more recently has led me into delving into the study of folklore which, of course, is also part of the title of this podcast. Over the past few years, I have become especially engrossed in studying and seeking to understand the origins of extant holidays. Um, that means holidays that are still around. Um, and of course, also some that maybe aren't still around, but we still feel the echoes of them. This field of study requires a lot of what I consider to be detective work, because my focus is on indigenous European and or pre-Christian European customs. And the indigenous peoples of Europe did not have writing. That was something introduced by both the Roman Empire and, by extension, uh, Christianity. So the written record we do have is almost exclusively recorded by outsiders to the cultures that they're observing. So... It's incredible that we have record of some of these practices and rituals and cultural attributes recorded at all. But the downside is that we can't always rely on them to be accurate. And so what I try to do is look at as many different sources as I can, which is often difficult because, again, there's often a, a, a dearth of anything actually recorded on the matter. 
and see what we can suss out. And I do strive to be as clear as possible when I'm discussing folklore and history in this through this lens that there is a lot we just don't know. There's so much that we don't know. But I have been so excited by what we do know, by what I have learned, that after studying folklore and holidays for several years, I decided to start offering some online courses about them, which you could find in the offerings section of my website. But that expanded over the past year into me giving in-person, I'll call them lectures, but they aren't really in-person deliveries of this information in in my hometown here in the mountains. Um, I'm good friends with a woman who has a shop in my town, and we have been billing them as immersive evenings because we do try, as much as the circumstances will allow, to have the attendees step into the space and feel like they have left modernity at the door and are coming into a place of learning in a place where they can potentially connect with their ancestors. We usually have some sort of a soundscape. For example, the most recent ones I did were about Yule. And so um, we had the soundscape of a winter snowstorm. We had some Swedish song as people were first arriving and entering. And um, I brought a little fake fireplace and played uh, the sounds of a fire crackling. So we do what we can to immerse everyone. And we usually open with a very simple, we call it a grounding ritual. It's really just like a meditation slash visualization, inviting everyone to just take a moment, relax and acknowledge where we are in the year in terms of the seasons. And I will talk for roughly an hour and I try to facilitate it to be more of a conversation or a discussion rather than a lecture. And then we do a craft because part of our goal by hosting these immersive evenings was to help kindred spirits connect and find each other. And we've learned a lot along the way. And I can say after wrapping this year, it's been a terrific success. I have had such incredible conversations with the folks who have attended these and not just directed at me, but like conversations among me included with all of the other attendees. And obviously they're looking to me for answers because I'm the one standing there, like sharing this history with them. And I don't have all the answers, but collectively I started to realize that there's something really powerful going on. There's this wave of, I'll call it, reclamation happening and people are very hungry for this knowledge and to understand ways that they can connect with their heritage and with the land and with the seasons in a intellectual level and an environmental level and a spiritual level and of course on a very unique individual level and that was another big impetus 
behind me starting this podcast was to not only share what I've learned from documented sources in the historical record and other folklorists, but also to share the literacy I have gained by having these complex discussions with people. And I thought, if I can share them, if I can share some of the... I'm going to use the word literacy again because I don't know what else to use. If I can share the vocabulary I have learned to coalesce these ideas that I've had for years, if not my lifetime, into concepts and phrases that are palatable and aren't necessarily triggering to people because sometimes it can get very difficult to talk about European descended peoples' heritage in this country without it being misconstrued often as something to do with race when it really isn't. Race is a race doesn't exist, it's a social construct. So hopefully that's the most you'll ever hear me even talk about race. But that is why I feel the need to be uh, very mindful of the terminology that I'm using. And having gained that terminology, such as European descended peoples, I am happy to share it and to help educate other people so that they can con continue these conversations. And in fact, if not the next episode, one of the very first episodes of this podcast is going to really delve into this conversation a bit more because there's so much healing to be done through honest communication about where we come from and why so many of us feel this desire to reconnect because many pre-Christian peoples were animistic and of course many were polytheistic and worshipped nature. They worshipped the natural world. And Christianity isn't alone in this, and I try not to ever tell the story that the um, missionaries were the big bad wolves who came and ruined everything, <laughs> but it was an incredibly disruptive process. Christ the Christianization of Europe was sometimes very violent, sometimes very peaceful, but over centuries, it was very disruptive. And, and since indigenous European peoples didn't have writing, we don't have a record of what came before. And I think that's what most of us want to get. Either we are of that faith, but we're open-minded and want to know what came before. We're not of that faith. We're not of any faith. We're just seeking to understand and to understand our lineage and our ancestors and the past in context. And that's something I always emphasize. Without context, we don't truly have meaning. And that is a big impetus for me delving into this research myself because so much more about the present day started to make sense. And that's why I'm looking forward to having discussions with, with my listeners and with anyone who wants to chat about it. Because if we don't have this context of the past, past, we can't truly understand where we are in the present. 
So that's why I think history is so important. That's why I think that through the lens of folklore, looking at different belief systems and ways of viewing the world is so important. And I think that it just leads to such a beautiful, more holistic understanding of the here and now. And that's a, a wonderful, wonderful thing to have. All of that said, I do want to clarify what I am not. I've said a lot about what I am, but what I'm not is a professional historian. I'm not an archaeologist. I'm not an anthropologist. I'm not a psychologist. I am not even a professional folklorist. And I'm certainly not a spiritual advisor. The education I've received and the knowledge that I have gained and am sharing with you through this podcast certainly touches on all of those subject matters, but I do want to make it clear that it isn't my area of focus or or expertise, and when I can, I will point people toward those who have dedicated their lives to understanding some of these things. That said, I have a working knowledge of all of those different disciplines, and I'm sure they will weave in and out as the conversation continues. What I am, as well, is someone who greatly enjoys connecting with others and sharing what I have learned in various ways. I have a dedication to the factual as much as that is possible. Again, I just painted a picture of how nebulous that can sometimes be. I do stick to the historical record and documented sources, again, as much as possible. I hopefully make it very clear when we don't completely understand a story, a custom, a ritual, etc. Um, a lot has been lost to time. But I am honored to have you join me on this path of doing our best to reclaim this lost knowledge. See, now it's like we're characters in a fantasy novel on an epic quest. I love it. I just want to conclude by sharing that when I opened, I said that I'm a creative person and that my creativity takes many different forms and avenues. And if you didn't know, I have an Etsy shop because I make so many things that I can't keep them and I need to get rid of them and I don't have the space to do them. Um, I really love learning hands-on skills. So... It's one thing to be dwelling in my imagination and crafting and storytelling and being intellectual and academic, but I also need to make things with my hands. So I'm also a knitter and I make candles, I make soap, I make jewelry, I paint, I draw. I'm not professing to be very talented at it, but it's something that I'd like to start getting more into. Um, I know I mentioned I used to illustrate my books when I was a kid. I was also very lauded for my artistic talent as a child. My joke is that I peaked at like 14 because I did this like 
black and white charcoal drawing of a lion that everyone agrees is a masterpiece. And I'm like, it is. It's 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 darn good. Don't need to do anything else. But really, I think what happened was I got to the point where I needed some direction from someone who could teach me a little bit more about art. And I just never received it or properly pursued it. So I want to get back into art for art's sake. But I also love to bake. I consider baking to be a form of creativity and a form of creative expression. If you do end up following me on social media, um, I'm going to make an effort to, at least in my Instagram stories, share more of the baked goods and fun things like that that I make. Because um, I'm a maker. I'm a maker as well as a talker. <laughs> Though I'm making things with my words, hopefully making sense at the very least. And finally, I wanted to share, I've already made reference to living in a small, rural mountain community. I wanted to just take a moment to acknowledge that I am in the northern part of California. I live in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And the older I get, the more I appreciate where I'm from. I dwell on a multi-generational family home. Some have called it a ranch in the past, though we are short on livestock at the moment. Um, and many of you, in fact, have glimpsed parts of our property through our YouTube channel, Happy Hobbit. But these mountains growing up with access to the forest, growing up observing the web of nature and ecology with my own being before I could even properly verbalize it has dramatically shaped who I am to the point that I often feel like my identity is directly tied to these mountains and to this geographic space. It's something difficult to, for me to express because it's so personal and I think it's difficult for people to understand who have moved a lot or maybe never were able to build that deep connection to space. But suffice it to say that it is intrinsic to my identity and shows up again and again and will, will probably come up in the under the umbrella of forests in this podcast. Um, it definitely plays a massive role in my the stories I tell, all of my books to date have nature in some way as a character. Not walking around and talking, but you know what I mean. It's a it's a presence. It's not just an inanimate thing. I believe that we are not separate from nature, that we are a part of nature. And I'm sure that philosophy or ideology will find its way into a lot of the stories I tell and information that I share with you moving forward. So... I'm a country girl, and I don't know why I just did like a southern twang. I'm in California. So I'm a country girl. I apologize to everyone in the southern United States who just had to hear that. And um, yeah, I, oh, 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 I, I forgot to mention a huge part of who I am. I'm a gardener, and I don't know why I'm talking about it like I'm Buddy the Elf sharing a secret, but I think because it's winter right now and I'm not doing much gardening, but that's a huge part of who I am. And so, I don't know, that might be dangerous for me to mention on this podcast because I might just start like going off. 
about plants. So hopefully I'll be able to share information about plants and gardening and that tactile way of being involved with the natural world and being anchored in the seasons in a way that relates to the other subject matter of this podcast. Um, we'll see. It's your guys' job to hold me to task. Not really. I'm an autonomous human being responsible for my own actions and behaviors. But uh, we'll see how this goes. Starting to unravel now, aren't we? To those of you who have had the grit to listen this far, I thank you so much. And I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for giving me some of your time. And I hope you have a somewhat of a conception of who's behind the microphone now so that when you listen to other episodes, you'll have some idea of who's talking and why. Um, I'm planning on doing more episodes like this. I may have my patrons choose what they want me to share about myself or my life. I'm a very private person, so it feels bizarre to be talking into a microphone and knowing that I'm going to publish this into the void. But um, that's something for me to address another time. I think this episode has gone on long enough. And I, again, am so thankful that you are giving this podcast a chance. And if you feel moved to do so, please do like it, share it with anyone you think might be interested. And of course, you can find me on social media. My website is www.kmrice.com, where you can check out more about me, my books, my educational offerings. I will put all of the links in the show notes. And before I go, I also want to acknowledge the beautiful music that you heard in the intro and are about to hear again was composed and recorded by the very talented Lane Thomas. And it is from his album, The Lands Beyond, beautiful fantasy score. And the music that I'm using the excerpt from is called The Village. So thank you so much for your time. And until we meet again, may your hearth be warm and your heart be full. Mm -hmm.